is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In two weeks, Japan is expected to relax travel restrictions. That is encouraging news for Jim Barahal, president of the Honolulu Marathon, which relies heavily on international participation from the Japanese. But it remains to be seen if that will mean a boost in participants for the premier race, which marks five decades this December. The number of participants from outside of Japan are higher, but Barahal is still hopeful. Well, this is the 50th anniversary of the Honolulu Marathon. I think a great accomplishment and the support from the community for all these years. Of course, this will be our first sort of full marathon since 2019. Uh, due to COVID, we did not have an event in 2020. Last year, we did put the race on. It was primarily a local event. We had about 9,000 people. So uh, this year, we're looking to return to a more normal-looking marathon, but there are still many challenges that we face here as we head into the fall. Well, the 50th anniversary is a biggie, and I just know, you know, uh, running in the 10K uh, last year was just, it was a real high point knowing that Waikiki was on its way back to rebound after the shutdown. I mean, it was just wonderful seeing, you know, the fireworks and all the runners. It was pretty exciting. Yeah, it was amazing last year uh, to put it on. It was the first real event um, since COVID in Hawaii. It was interesting in the sense that uh, I think we all thought COVID was kind of done at the time we put the marathon on last December. Little did we know that there were a couple more variants uh, coming and that certainly COVID is not gone. Um, but we were pleased to be able to put the event on. I think psychologically it was a big boost to the community. We were thrilled that there were no outbreaks of COVID due to the marathon, which reinforced again that outdoor activities are safe. That seems to have always been the case since COVID started. And I think putting on an event with 9,000 people last December confirmed that these activities were safe. And so, again, we're excited for this year, but we do have some challenges. The Hanu Marathon, I think, faces almost um, exclusively compared to other events in Hawaii is that it's always been a very big Japanese uh, visitor destination event. And that market has not returned. Uh, So it does present challenges for us. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are still trickling in. You know, the flights have not resumed. Uh, we don't have the same kind of airlift. But, you know, we also have the yen. You know, the, the exchange rate from yen to the dollar is weak. Yeah, the, yeah, the yen is a, the yen dollar exchange rate is a huge problem. The dollar is very strong. I think the yen rate is about 135. One thing interesting about the Honolulu Marathon as a business is that most of our sponsors have, have been from Japan, are from Japan, uh, specifically this year, uh, Japan Airlines and the Zuno. And those sponsorships are in yen. And the entries from Japan that we get, our historic average over the last 20 years is be, between 15 and 20,000 entrants from J- Japan across our different race platforms, which would be the marathon the Start to Park 10K, and the Kalakaua Mary Mile, uh, those 15,000 to 20,000 entrants also enter in yen. So we work with our Japanese partners. They collect the money in yen uh, and pay us in dollars. Uh, you can see the problem right there. Your sponsors have stuck with you, though, and I, I believe I was told that JL only sponsored two events, and you were one of them. Yeah, JL's been amazing as they continue to stay with us and even gave us sponsorship money when the event wasn't held. And certainly last year, when there were essentially no Japanese, uh, we had, I think, about 150 people from Japan last year. So they stood by us, as has Mizuno. So uh, we're grateful for that. But I think the expectation of the uh, community, and certainly our own expectation uh, for how we want the marathon to be, uh, which is an incredible celebration for the 50th anniversary. Again, presents challenges. This is my 35th year as president of the Honda Marathon. I think this looks to me like the most challenging since my first year as, as president in 1987 when we had uh, torrential rains before that race. How have the registrations been? You know, we've got about four more months before uh, the race comes around, but are they on track? Well, the entries uh, are actually incredible. For every region other than international and specifically Japan, we're really doing quite well. Our entries total non-Japanese right now for the three events are about 17,000. The entries are up 26% compared to 2019, which is what we compare it to, which was our last full year. 
And so our mainland entries are also up uh, dramatically, about 90% increase in our, in our entries from the mainland. So the entries are great for everything other than Japan. We're down 73% in Japan on a comparable date in 2019. And since Japan has been our key market economically, that's pretty rough stuff uh, for us. I think that one thing that people may not have thought about, they probably realize it but haven't thought about it, is the Hanu Marathon is a, is a world-class athletic event. It's, besides being a big participation event, I, I personally have always seen it as an athletic competition. My entry into the sport uh, began as a recreational runner, then a competitor, and, and a fan of, of the sport and all sports, to be honest with you. And so we're, pro- we're very proud of the great runners that we've had here, the incredible times, the course records, in particular our relationship over the years with incredible Kenyan runners. We have been the race where many great champions have broken through. We've all offered opportunity to, uh, to many great runners. And it's, it's something that we're reluctant to let go of. And I think that so we want to put together a competitive field out there for the race and bring people in from other countries. And I think, you know, financially, that does present some challenges to us. So uh, the entries are incredible this year, other than Japan, but because Japan is such a large part of our revenue, in a normal year, about 80% of our revenue, sponsorship and, and, and entries come from Japan. So in a way, the, the Hawaii runners get a chance to participate in this mega sporting event, both as a participation and as a, on a competitive level, thanks to the revenue that comes in from Japan. So it's going to be an incredible event this year, but we are hoping that things can pick up at least a little from Japan. As you reflect on the 50 years, I mean, you know, you folks have been able to pull this off year after year without a whole lot of government support or, or subsidies J- just because it, it you know as you mentioned it, it's a competitive athletic event and you want to get you know the top racers the top runners competing yeah we don't get any financial support from the government from the hawaii tourism authority we've never actually gotten any money for the event and i've always been self-sustaining self-supporting you know and that that's a good thing i think we want to give back to the community and we definitely do and um We've been very fortunate that we've had these incredible sponsors and that people from all over the world have signed up and paid those entry fees uh, to run. Now, last year, we did put the race on in December, and as you pointed out, Catherine, it was incredible to um, to experience that in the middle of a pandemic, but uh, we did run that race at a deficit uh, financially. And then what about other uh, international racers? Are you expecting to draw as many international runners? Well, the international runners are up quite a bit, but... Um, the, the main number we get is from is from Japan, and we're talking mm-hmm. uh, thousands and thousands. So, uh, for example, uh, this year right now of our entries, we have 15,839 right now from the United States. Most of those are from Hawaii, but we do have uh, 1,854 from California. We're up 118% in California. But as far as other countries, we have 303 from Canada which is about level from 2019. We have 158 from Australia, down 15%. We have 96 from Germany, down 38%. 57 from New Zealand and 43 uh, from Korea. So, you know, we're doing okay internationally. We're down 19% uh, from 2019. But that's, again, that doesn't include the Japanese. And the Japanese numbers are more than, normally would be more than every other country and the United States combined. Wow. More than 15% of the field. So there's not much we can do about that, really. The, the Japan, because of its uh, geographic proximity, the love of Japanese people for Hawaii, for the culture, um, the tradition of running the Honolulu Marathon, the no time limit, a number of factors make that our biggest market. And so the mainland United States, although we're up so much, the lots of marathons in lots of cities on the west coast of the United States and, and elsewhere. So people were never going to be able to replace the Japanese numbers. What about the elite runners? How many do you expect to have from uh, from Kenya? I think we're looking at probably six this okay. year at this point. Last year we brought two. Normally we would have eight to ten. We are looking to, for the Kalakaua Mary Mile, we are looking to, um, we have a pro race after the mile, which the, the men chase the women, we didn't do that last year. That's been really fun, and the fastest time we've had out there is 3 minutes, 53 seconds. Wow. This has emerged as arguably the top road mile in the world. The only one that compares hmm. with it is, is the New York Fifth Avenue mile. 
So we made a decision about three weeks ago to go ahead and put the the professional mile at the end of the participation mile. We're going to do that again. That costs a little money. We have quite a few uh, entries in the mile. Uh, considering that we don't have any Japanese, we have uh, 1,106 entries in the mile at this point, and that's up 27%. The start to park 10K, we have 2,740. That's up 47%. Wow. You know, people make their travel plans early. Most of our Japan entries came in our early entry period in May. So right now, uh, we have a total of 2,594 Japanese entries across our three races, with a little over 2,000 of those in the marathon. 400 or so in the start to park. And, and what do we normally get? Normally, at this point, we'd have about 7,500 entries, okay. almost 8,000, and we're at about 2,500. So it's a huge drop. And so the airlift is not there. The yen rate, the yen dollar exchange rate is, 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 is troublesome. But that being said, we, it is going to be a big event this year. We're already approaching 20,000 total entries. So it will be a big event, and we're excited as we, as we move into the fall. And you can see from our numbers with the increase in every, every area that had the Japan market opened up, the demand from Japan would have been overwhelming. That was Jim Barahal, president and CEO of the Honolulu Marathon Competition, which marks its 50th anniversary in December. Barahal is hopeful with the news that Japan plans to relax travel restrictions come September 7th. It's not clear, though, if that will be enough to overcome the other challenges of the exchange rate with the dollar and yen. Some people thrive in high-pressure situations, and some don't. Choking occurs when you feel the most pressure, you want to put your best foot forward, you know how to do it. And then all of a sudden, you just can't pull it off. How to fight anxiety when it matters most, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we're testing your knowledge about the Friendly Isle. We're looking for the name of a man who was credited with an engineering marvel on Molokai. He was born in Hamburg, Germany, studied civil engineering. He wanted to join the California Gold Rush in 1849, but ended up taking delayed stopovers in Sydney, Australia, Tahiti, and Lahaina. At the Maui port, he listed his occupation as a surveyor. He made his way back to Molokai, where he stayed as a house guest of Reverend Harvey Rexford Hitchcock. There he met High Chiefess Kalama Vava, a student of the Hitchcocks, and he married her in 1851. After a brief stay in Honolulu, he moved back to Molokai, where he established farming operations and a sugar plantation. He built an animal-powered sugar mill in the 1870s, but it fell into disuse after the industry's decline. Over 100 years later, it was restored in the 1980s, and the mill is now a National Historic Engineering Landmark that bears his name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know who we have been describing. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. This hour, the head of the small uh, U.S. Small Business Administration is in Maui. Isabella Guzman is talking with owners of small companies about surviving the pandemic and how the Inflation Reduction Act just passed by President Joe Biden could help them through this next phase of recovery. Guzman talked with us yesterday after a listening session in Honolulu. SBA has been in a very unique role during the, the pandemic and through the American Rescue Plan with President Biden, as well as the relief programs we've been able to put in over $6.4 billion into Hawaii, Hawaiian-owned small businesses. And it's been obviously such a difficult time for, for many of them, especially those in hard-hit industries. So I've been glad to help ensure that the small businesses were supported with that critical relief. But now, as we pass those programs, there are still challenges. And obviously, we want to continue to help support small businesses. And the Inflation Reduction Act uh, actually will be a, a huge support for small businesses to help cut critical costs right now during these challenging times as we move to cut costs around health care and prescription drugs and energy costs and help build up the American leadership around combating climate change strengthening our energy transition, where small businesses, of course, will be a part of, you know, building that energy of the future. And so SBA's programs are really made to help deliver on the promise of entrepreneurship to more Americans, and we're committed to helping them with the capital that they need and the resources that they need to grow. You know, we saw so many businesses shut down during the pandemic through the last couple of years, and we're hearing so much about the difficulty of getting workers and keeping workers. So how will this act help small businesses do that? The small businesses have faced such key challenges around inflation, but not only that, yes, the workforce challenges, supply chain challenges from the beginning, frankly, because they were oftentimes the, the hardest hit and the last to be able to you know, receive goods, et cetera. And so obviously we're continuing to see record job creation and unemployment rates drive down as we've been able to recreate all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. So that's been really important. But we also saw this great resignation and small businesses were affected by that, you know, by lowering the cost of healthcare and, and you know, lowering prescription drugs. That's not only for that will help small businesses, but also their employees. I think, you know, however we can create some stability into those systems will help inure to small businesses in their recruitment of employees. But I think overall at the SBA, we're looking to try to help businesses shore up their balance sheets so that they can compete in the marketplace for workers and learn strategies um, of attraction and retention. And in fact, we have some great tools through a new partnership, a small business digital alliance including on how to attract and retain and manage employees. And so I would just encourage small businesses to learn more about the resources that the SBA can provide to them at sba.gov. What do you think will be the most immediate effect of the Inflation Act for these small businesses? You know, small businesses are repeatedly flag, you know, health care is, is one of their top five issues. You know, obviously access to capital is really important, how to grow your your revenues, workforce challenges, but, you know, health care costs, rising health care costs is, is is often a challenge for businesses um, or for new entrepreneurs trying to exit the, the private uh, workforce to start up on their own. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act will extend uh, the savings that 15 million Americans benefit from annually uh, in healthcare costs. And it's gonna cap out uh, the out-of-pocket expenses for prescription drugs for, for seniors and cap insulin and let Medicare negotiate prices, driving down the cost of prescription drugs overall and lowering energy costs. A lot of the benefits will start to kick in in 2022 when they can take some of those tax incentives and rebates to help lower their cost of energy and build an energy infrastructure of the future. But I think on an immediate basis by, you know, cutting at a macro level, you know, cutting the federal deficit with, with these benefits over time will really help 
inflation overall and with the, the focus on collecting taxes from the largest corporation and ensuring that no one making under 400000 has to pay a penny more in taxes, we're creating a more level playing field for our small businesses. A lot of companies you know, worry about the red tape in order to access some of this help. What can you say you know, to assure these small companies that you know, you're not going to get bogged down in that? Yeah, and exactly that's what SBA is here to help. The American Rescue Plan President Biden put forward includes a community navigator pilot program. So if any small business is, is challenged with trying to access these incentives or rebates or figure out how they can leverage these programs to, you know, to, to be part of the manufacturing or supply chain build around uh, clean energy transition, then they should come to the SBA. We have this great community navigator pilot program where we fund a network of partners on the ground to help businesses access federal resources across the board. And those partners, in addition to our Small Business Development Center, our Women's Business Center in Hawaii, and our district office, these are folks that can help your business navigate these resources and access uh, benefits through not only the Inflation Reduction Act, but also the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Chips and Science Act to make sure that all of our businesses could be part of this reinvestment in American manufacturing and American innovation as we build an economy that works for everyone. Is there anything specifically that will help businesses that are run by women? We at the SBA in the president's budget have really expanded our investment in, in women entrepreneurship, increasing the number of women entrepreneurship programs across the country and ensuring that we're taking into consideration unique challenges that women business owners face in our training and our capital programs across the board. And so it's a fact that women entrepreneurs have been starting businesses at the highest rates for the last 10 years. And we know that many of these small business owners have unique challenges and face historic barriers that we want to help them overcome at the SBA. So between our women's business centers and Senator Hirono and I will be visiting the Patty Meek Center where our women's business center is located in addition to you know, making sure that the women entrepreneurs are welcomed at the SBA with products that fit their needs. And I think that we can go a long way towards advancing those entrepreneurs so they can do what they do best, which is create those products and services we depend on and create jobs and produce for our economy. We've been hearing from Isabella Guzman, head of the Small Business Administration, who is on Maui today to talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act will help small, help small companies. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story today about the ongoing saga of uh, former Deputy Prosecutor Catherine K. Aloha. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, K. Aloha is still behind bars, but she's trying to get out. <laughs> That's right. Um, so from the Honolulu Federal Detention Center, Catherine K. Aloha, the disgraced former Deputy uh, Prosecutor, um, is trying to get her 2019 conviction overturned. So if you recall, this was the mailbox conspiracy. She worked with her husband, the then police chief, Louis Kaloha, to frame her uncle for a crime the uncle did not commit. Um, and they were both convicted of uh, conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Now, the latest development is that Catherine Kaloha is... Um, asking the prosecutor of that case to recuse himself um, through in the case that is ongoing because she's trying to appeal. Um, and that is on the grounds that he uh, inserted in court records a few years ago mention of a photo that allegedly exists of Catherine doing cocaine on her husband's desk at HPD. Uh, Catherine Kaylaw says this photo does not exist, but just mentioning it to her husband um, destroyed her marriage, is what she said. Okay, but uh, I know there were other uh, incidents, I believe. I think she had an affair with a firefighter and some some other issues uh, yes. to deal with. 
Yes, uh, according to Catherine Kaloha, um, her multiple felonies and extramarital affair and uh, everything that's been going on in the last few years was not what destroyed her marriage. It was um, the alleged existence of this photo, as mentioned by prosecutor Michael Wheat. Um, and so she's now making the argument that uh, th- that uh, mention of the photo in plea agreement negotiations for for other crimes separate from the mailbox conspiracy that it sort of uh, coerced the couple into pleading guilty and um, she wants that to be undone I guess. And she had mentioned that what uh, it was that alleged photo that destroyed her marriage because the uh, chief's job really meant the world to him. Right she just um, really spoke glowingly of her husband. They're still married although Louis filed for divorce. It was never finalized. I guess you could say they're estranged. But she said that um, her husband did everything he did. He did for HPD, and um, he's even put HPD before his family. Now, when I asked um, Ali Silvert about this, he's the former public defender that really exposed the Kalohas. He said, you know, really? Uh, This guy obstructed justice and um, violated Catherine's uncle's civil rights. You know, he really said the gall of this woman is uh, unsurpassed. And now Kilaha wants uh, Prosecutor Wheat to step down because of all this. She does. Yeah. He, the government hasn't filed a response yet, so we'll see what they say and um, we'll see what the court says. Um, you know, Silvert and Catherine's own former attorney, Earl Partington, really say she doesn't stand a chance here. Um, but uh, she is filing these legal things from prison, and that's that's how she's proceeding. And she's made an issue of um, the representation that she's had, her legal re- representation. Right. That's sort of the argument that she's making, um, that or she's hoping to make with an appeal, is that her lawyer, Cynthia Kajiwada, um, you know, was inadequate and didn't provide a sufficient defense in the mailbox case. So we'll see if the judge allows that argument to even go forward. Um, you know, we're just sort of at the beginning of this. And then she had another attorney, um, Earl Partington, uh, but he too doesn't think her appeal will stand a chance. Right. He said he wishes her the best, but really doesn't think this is going to go anywhere. And, you know, she is behind bars. Uh, and, you know, without, I guess, an attorney, she's just uh, doing this on her own, right? She is. She's pro se, and she's filing these uh, legal motions from the detention center, handwritten. Um, but she doesn't. She's not uh, a licensed attorney anymore. But you know, she does, of course, have the legal training from her former career. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting that uh, uh, all her filings are handwritten, um, and uh, yeah, that's how she's making her case. Yes, it's uh, quite a fall from grace for Catherine Kaloha. I guess we'll just, so we'll have to wait to see um, what Mr. Wheat's response is and then what the court ultimately decides. Right. Yeah, we'll definitely keep you updated. Um, You know, again, the the legal experts sort of say this probably isn't going to go anywhere, but um, who knows? She may say more interesting things. Um, We may see the photo if it exists. She says it doesn't. we're going to stay on it and uh, keep you all updated. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thanks. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story by going to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, August 28th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Rabbi Steve Leader, author of For You When I Am Gone. 
Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about essential questions to tell a life story. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the upcoming exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening. Learn more about how to be a part of this immersive, collaborative celebration of flowers at honolulumuseum.org. Probably all know that feeling. You're lying in bed. It's dark. You're under the covers. But try as you might, we can't seem to drift off to sleep. Most of us are able to brush off one night of bad sleep. But for some of us, insomnia becomes a nightly battle. Today, we're digging into the causes of this sleep disorder with the conversation's resident insomniac, Savannah Harriman Boats. When was the last time I had a good night's sleep? Oh, geez. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be... Not upsetting, but I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be longer than you think. I'd say probably about two months ago, I got a good eight hours. How did you feel when you woke up? Oh, amazing. Amazing. I see why everybody's doing it. I see what people are raving about. Evie Hill has had insomnia for nearly half her life. It started when she was in her early teens. Probably about as long as I can remember. I haven't been a great sleeper, but around uh, high school is where I really identify that I wasn't sleeping at all, <laughs> you know. And now I, I vary an enormous amount. I have some nights I don't sleep at all, and on average probably get uh, three to four hours of sleep. About a third of people will experience insomnia at some point in their lives, often during times of extreme emotional distress or related to an injury or illness. But only 10% of people have chronic insomnia like Hill, which can last years. Dr. Anil Rama is the president of the Sleep and Brain Clinic in California and also works as an assistant adjunct professor in the sleep medicine department at Stanford University. He says that when people seek treatment for insomnia, there's a little checklist he goes through with them. Feel free to follow along at home. It's easy to diagnose. In general, it's the difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, waking up too early in the morning and never getting back to sleep, or sleeping through the night but feeling unrested. Insomnia is easy to diagnose, but it can be difficult to treat, something Hill knows firsthand. If you're a severe case, which they say I'm a severe case of insomnia, they they they, they take they, they will show you this like chart thing, and they're the steps that they want to have you do. And at like level one is sleep hygiene and melatonin, because that's the that's the thing everybody takes to start helping the regular. It's the very first thing they suggest, and then they move down um, to things drugs that are actually going to knock you out, not like sedative but like something like trazodone which is what i end up using now that will definitely put somebody to sleep it induces sleep but it's not a full rest it's definitely very different falling asleep off a of medication than naturally falling asleep mm. and you wake up much more groggy in addition to feeling groggy he'll notices changes in her memory and attention that plus her varying energy levels take certain activities off the table including a typical day job i think i think it make some jobs out of being feasible to me because it's so severe that I can't work anything that's nine to five and requires so many regular hours. I can't work anything that customer facing. Hill works in the tech industry as a data scientist. It gives her the flexibility to set her own schedule depending upon how she's feeling. And she likes it. But not everyone with insomnia is able to find a workable solution. For Dr. Rama's patients, it's not just about how they're spending their nights, but how they're able to spend their days. Once again, we think of insomnia as a nighttime problem, but it's really how it impacts their daytime that I believe is what troubles them the most. They're, they're fatigued, they're exhausted, their work performance is, is impaired, or their school performance, their academic performance is not ideal. Their relationships suffer because they're irritable, impatient. They don't want to do any activities, so they can't socially be with their friends as much because they're just wiped out. 
And all that stress doesn't exactly make it easier to fall asleep at night. You can develop negative associations with sleep where you, instead of thinking sleep is natural, you're thinking sleep is unnatural and you'll never be able to fall asleep. There's also the general condition, not necessarily towards insomnia, but towards sleep conditions in general called orthosomnia. And what that means is that it's a almost like an OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder towards sleep. But some people have it specifically towards insomnia. They focus that all my life's problems, everything, my work, my relationships, my school, my, my well-being, my health, everything is related to my sleep and I can't sleep. And Hill says those kind of thoughts can start to feel like a tape on repeat. The starting thought that, that starts that anxiety is if you've been awake for a day and really want to fall asleep and don't in an hour of laying down, you feel like you're doing something wrong. You know, I feel like I didn't set myself up right to go to bed. I didn't, I didn't try the right thing. Maybe it should have been a trazodone night. Maybe I should have taken melatonin. Maybe I should be laying on a different surface. You feel like you are messing up your ability to fall asleep. And you, there's a lot of personal responsibility thrust upon you because it's like, who else can I blame? Dr. Rama says that kind of self-doubt is common among his patients. But many cases of insomnia, even chronic insomnia, do have treatable root causes. Sleep is very important, but I will say that the two primordial aspects of any organism are digestion and respiration. Those are the two most important. And what you'll find is that a lot of sleep conditions are secondary to a problem in one of those. While much of the conversation around the causes of insomnia centers on stress, researchers are paying more and more attention to the connection between our digestion and respiration and the quality of our sleep. Hill herself thinks this path may offer clues. And I have a, a digestive disorder, uh, and, I, and I've heard that could be related because people especially are starting to think, I know some of the new research, is that your gut biome actually could, could help you form a circadian rhythm. Hill's exploring the idea of taking probiotics to regulate her digestion to see if it helps with her insomnia. And Dr. Rama says it's likely we could all improve our sleep with better eating and breathing practices. Eat unprocessed food, number two, nasal breathing. Nasal breathing is just breathing through your nose, which our bodies are designed to do. But when we're rushing through our sentences in conversation, we have the habit of breathing through our mouths, like I just did. It's a very subtle thing. And if you try to change it, it's very difficult. In fact, you're almost confused. You, don't, you forget how to speak because it's so natural to do that. While mouth breathing may seem like a small thing to make a fuss over, it can have big implications for the quality of your sleep. Breathing through your mouth may increase your likelihood of certain sleep problems like sleep apnea. Dr. Rama says taking note of our breathing habits during the day is a good first step in addressing any breathing challenges we might be having at night. And he would know, Dr. Rama himself had a breathing problem that interrupted his sleep when he was young. And even his father, a pediatrician, didn't make the connection. Even he didn't pick up on it because I don't think people focused on sleep as much 40 years ago. <laughs> I feel like the attitude has changed a lot. I feel like the attitude about mental health as a whole has changed a lot, the conversation just just naturally. And I think it has even affected doctors because doctors haven't even always been in on it. And I, and I think they're aware that insomnia can really affect your quality of life and the way you have to live and structure around it. Dr. Rama says all people across every community, age, and profession can experience insomnia. And every person might need a different approach in treatment. They have to feel it themselves. They have to say, oh, this is accurate. And then they can finally work towards undergoing whatever treatments are necessary to fix it. But Hill says for her, nothing's clicked. At least not yet. Can you envision a future in which you do sleep well? Um, not, not especially at this point. I can envision futures in which I sleep better, <laughs> but but I don't I I can't imagine at this point a regular sleep cycle because honestly it's gotten to the point I feel like other people are sleeping a ton, like <laughs> like I don't know how they do things with how much they're asleep. 
(laughs) (laughs) You're like, eight hours, that's decadent. Yeah, yeah, that's decadent. That's so much time. And that was the conversation. Savannah Harriman Pote speaking with Honolulu resident Evie Hill and Dr. Anil Rama about the causes and treatments of insomnia. If you've ever had a hard time sleeping lately, uh, Evie Hill says she knows the feeling. I know whenever somebody has trouble sleeping because they want to talk to somebody and I'm always awake. I feel like I run a, a night hotline for my friends sometimes. Well, instead of calling Hill, you can talk to us. We did hear from Dylan from Honolulu, who sometimes resorts to that age-old trick to fall asleep counting sheep. I would say white sheep with black faces. Like, I sort of, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, there used to be this um, mattress commercial that they had sheep. Sean the Sheep. I don't know if you know that character, but like claymation sort of sheep, I guess. Sometimes it does work, but very often not. And to share your sleep story, call on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or fill out our sleep survey at hawaiipublicradio.org. And tomorrow to cap off our sleep series, we're going someplace pretty special, a night trip to the Honolulu Zoo. You feel a difference, especially as the sun goes down. The air just becomes that much more cooler and more inviting. With that comes a little bit of strangeness just because things look different in the dark. We've actually had staff members get lost here in the dark sometimes. Yeah, so join us, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And all asleep, we think. Did we make it back? Find out tomorrow on The Conversation. In today's Backyard Quiz, we looked at a surveyor and entrepreneur who made a mark on Molokai. An immigrant from Germany, he married High Chiefess Kalama Vaha in the 1850s and settled on a homestead on the Friendly Isle. In 1866, he became Molokai surveyor and held the titles Commissioner of Fencers and Road Supervisor. His home was also close to Kalaupapa, and he served as supplier and liaison to the people there who were not uh, afflicted by Hansen's disease. He started a business selling crops, which included corn, wheat, and kalo. After tariffs on sugar exports were removed, his family got into the business, becoming the first to grow and mill sugar on the island. Compared to larger plantations, it was a modest operation and used outdated technology even for the time. But unlike those larger operations, this mill was rebuilt and stands today as a museum. Listed on the U.S. National Registry of Historic Places, it bears the name of its owner, Rudolf Wilhelm R.W. Meyer, the answer to today's quiz. And congrats to Mike from Kaimuki. You got it right. Got a quiz idea? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. On the next Fresh Air, journalist Jesse Isinger explains how a trove of IRS data acquired by ProPublica shows that many of America's billionaires avoid paying taxes. He'll also look at how the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Congress could affect the tax obligations of the wealthiest Americans. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby featuring a backdrop of Hawaii's flora by local artist Kamea Hadar. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com.
the trust that stewards the assets of Hawaii's last reigning monarch, Queen Liliuokalani, is selling more than 100 acres of legacy lands in Kona on Hawaii Island. Proceeds of the sale will fund an expansion in services, but critics argue that trust decisions are being made with little to no beneficiary input. HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, HPR has been following this effort by the Lili'iwokalani Trust. I know we've done a, a few stories ourselves here of selling off revenue-generating lands in favor of creating what they're now calling uh, mission spaces, so to provide direct services to Native Hawaiian youth. Uh, just as background for those who might not be familiar with the trust, uh, Queen Lili'iwokalani uh, Trust or... Uh, in formerly known as the Queen Liliuokalani Children's Center, um, is a, pretty much a private foundation to which Queen Liliuokalani had left nearly all of her entire estate, more than 6,000 acres statewide, to care for orphaned and disadvantaged Native Hawaiian children. And so over the past century, uh, LT, as it's been rebranded, Liliuokalani Trust, became a model for a culture-based and place-based social services for Native Hawaiian youth. It's headquartered here in, in downtown Honolulu with a board of about, uh, three trustees, and then they've got 10 kipuka, or uh, service centers, throughout the islands. Uh, but in recent years, the trust began to sell some of its lucrative land holdings, uh, most notably its Waikiki land, um, which brought in, gosh, $273 million uh, back in 2019. And then two years ago, it put uh, two of its service sites, one in Punalu'u and the other in Kapala on the market for, I think, the combined assessed value was $15 million. And so they're saying, you know, the proceeds from these sales have allowed the trust to undergo a massive expansion in services, uh, including, and uh, we got to visit over on the Big Island, a soon-to-be-opened 10-acre therapeutic ranch in Waimea mm. on Hawaii Island. Uh, Jill Beatty, a veteran social worker with the trust who grew up at Puva'ava Ranch, so it's sort of her, her heart, uh, love, and passion project. Uh, she gave us a tour of LT Ranch and she's the program director there. She's introducing us to some of her co-workers here. So we have uh, Teddy, oh, okay. or Mr. Ted, or Mr. P, whatever you feel like calling him. And he's a retired ranch horse. Both of them are. So we have Teddy and Gigi. Gigi. Yeah. Okay. What's their role in this whole getup? So they are part of our equine therapy program. And so that's basically a kind of an innovative um, experiential approach to working with people around counseling or mental health um, goals. And our horses are our partners, our teachers, our co-assistants um, helping in that process. So. The LT Ranch uh, is also home to two pigs, uh, two goats, two sheep, and we got to meet them all. Uh, but uh, the goal of the ranch is really to provide uh, Native Hawaiian youth uh, space for healing through animals, uh, arts, and, and aina. And the ranch is among many of the sort of uh, innovative, trauma-informed, and indigenous-informed social work initiatives that the trust is trying to bring to more uh, Native Hawaiian youth statewide. And, and selling its its lands is part of that expansion. But this is where the story begins to sound like the stories we've done in the past. Uh, many in the community, including beneficiaries, Native Hawaiians, and, and former trust employees, were caught off guard by the news of uh, this potential sale of Kona lands. Uh, critics of, of this continued sale of legacy lands by the trust are worried that once you, you sell these lands, they'll, they'll be gone forever. And that's the sentiment shared by 79-year-old uh, Gwen Kim, who devoted three decades of her life as a social worker uh, to the trust. She says she's frustrated, you know, with the lack of, of beneficiary and, uh, input and community outreach in these decisions. And she thinks there's a disconnect uh, there. And it's, uh, it's a lens through which she sees all of uh, the LEE trusts. Look what has to happen at Bishop Estate when they were just sucking all the money and the breath of life out of the educational section. They had to be brought down. But now the question is, how are they, how are all of the elite trusts truly fulfilling their mission? Or are there those corporate entities sucking the life's blood out of what really belongs to the people?
So the last we've heard, and we reached out to the trust to, to get their comments on uh, whether or not beneficiary input, uh, you know, uh, is, there's a bigger role for that in their decisions. And uh, the the response, uh, to paraphrase, is, is you know, Queen Liliuokalani and her a 1909 deed of trust empowered us fully as trustees to make the best decision for the trust. We think this is the best decision for the trust. And while we value a beneficiary input, um, we, we're fully empowered to make these decisions, whether or not um, beneficiary input is a part of that. And that, that's kind of the line we're hearing now. Right. Well, I guess only time will tell. But um, so for folks who don't know where these legacy lands are, uh, most of her lands were in Kona on the Big Island. Uh, there are some here, uh, but then uh, on Oahu in uh, Kapalama. Uh, but uh, for the folks who um, recently, when you sell these lands, they've acquired other lands. And so that's part of what's going on. I think we uh, covered the purchase of the old Honolulu Club off there on Ward uh, Avenue. Mm-hmm. That's now, uh, I think, going to be the future headquarters of most of their services here on Oahu. And um, we'll see more of that. The last we heard of the Kona land sale, uh, uh, there were a number of limited uh, number of private investors that were uh, reached out to to see if they were interested in, in purchasing this land. Okay, we'll see what happens. But thank you so much. Thank you. We have been hearing from HBR's Kuvehi Reishi. Check out her story on hawaiipublicradio.org. is it for us today. Up tomorrow, we hear about the comeback for the Kona Ironman competition with twice the number of athletes expected this October. Give us some feedback. Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and you can connect with Facebook too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.